Well, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Is that loud enough? Okay, great. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's great to be with you this morning. And we are in a series at the minute on resurrection encounters. So for the last few weeks, we have been exploring different meetings that have taken place between Jesus and his disciples in the 40 days between the resurrection that we celebrate on Easter Sunday and the ascension, which we will be looking at today. So if you have been here with us in any of the last few weeks and you can remember enough to cast your mind back, on that first week we looked at the story of Mary as she went to Jesus's tomb in a state of total grief but she left with an unexpected joy and then the next week we looked at the story of Thomas the disciple who doubted he couldn't believe he couldn't get his head around the idea that Jesus was alive until he saw him face to face he struggled with that doubt and then last week we looked at Peter and the experience of shame and failure that he felt having denied Jesus until he met with Jesus again and Jesus recalled him, reclaimed him and loved him. So grief, doubt, shame. Have we been having a good time? <laughs> Great. Um, well, as I said, all of these events happen within a period of 40 days after the resurrection and Jesus appeared to many people and taught his disciples and so then at the end of the 40 days we have this thing that happens called the ascension which we're going to be looking at today and in the bible we have two accounts of the ascension written by the same person so we have a very brief summary right at the end of the book of Luke written by Luke and then at the beginning of Acts he gives us the story in greater detail and that's what we're going to read from now. So if you have your Bibles open you can turn them to Acts 1, 1 to 11 and that's just helpful if you want to keep it open for the whole morning or it will also come up on the screen as well. So let me read. In my former book Theophilus I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he, was presented, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
They were looking intently up at the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking at the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the way you have seen him go into heaven. So we have just read about the last moments that Jesus, the Son of God, was physically on the earth. And the ascension is an extraordinary scene. Now, I was at an arcade earlier this week, which I know makes me sound about 12, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I was at an arcade this week, and do you know those grabby machines? Bronte knows, she was there with me. Do you know those grabby machines where you, you try desperately to get a plushy toy and it's a massive con and you can never get one? Well, I got one. <laughs> Call me anointed, I, d I don't know, I don't know. But I truly thought that I would experience no greater ascension this week than watching that plushy toy rise and successfully drop into the hole. But I have to say, I think this story maybe trumps that a little bit. But seriously though, if this happened today, if the ascension happened today, if there were witnesses to a man being caught up into this unexpected, unpredicted, unusual cloud formation, if we saw a man being risen off the ground into the sky and disappearing, never to be seen again, because that's what they're saying is happening here, we would be talking about it. It would be breaking news. And you just know that Peter is such a keen bean that he would have whipped out his iPhone and taken a few videos. We would, we would know about it if it happened today. It would demand our attention. And it still should, because we might not have videos. But we have the testimonies of these men who definitely would not have risked sounding like absolute lunatics if it wasn't for the fact they truly, genuinely believed beyond all doubt that this man that they called friend, this man that they had been eating with, that they knew well, was not just any other man. That he had died, he was resurrected, and now he had ascended before their eyes. They were convinced this man was God and that people needed to know and this was more than just a seemingly far-fetched claim. It was more than controversial. It was a total rebellion. Because the ascension sealed Jesus' declaration that he is the one true king. You see, Jesus chose the Mount of Olives. And I have a slide where you can vaguely see that in the background. And the Mount of Olives is a location of an ancient Jewish cemetery. He chose that location as his place of ascension. And so through this, in two different ways, he was showing up every other claim to kingship. He was showing up every other claim to the Jews and the non-Jews. Because Jewish people believed that the Mount of Olives by Jerusalem was the starting place of the messianic era. That's why it was a cemetery, because people believed that if you were buried there, then you would be the first to rise from the dead. It was significant. It was about kingship. And Jesus is saying, yeah, this is me. And as for the Romans, at the time there was this belief that the Caesar would, when he died, ascend himself. But 
obviously, because he had no actual power to do any of that. It was just a kind of soul ascension that was depicted in imagery and in story. So Jesus, I think, is making a point by being at this cemetery and saying, yeah, your body is going to stay in a cemetery. I'm here. I am not dead. This is an embodied resurrection. It's a totally unique claim. It's a totally unique reality. So everything about this moment is significant, even the place. Nikki Lee, a vicar at the HTB church in London, um, some of you might know him as one of the guys that does the marriage course stuff, he was preaching on this and he said, if the resurrection proclaims that Jesus is alive, the ascension proclaims that Jesus is Lord. And so that's what his disciples began to proclaim. And people believed them, backed up by hundreds of eyewitnesses of people that had seen Jesus after they'd seen him be murdered. People rapidly began to believe in Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King. So why is the ascension itself important? What is the ascension all about? Well, if you are familiar with some of the stories in scripture, you might be having a bit of a ding, 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 light bulb moment when you hear that it was 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, because that is a pretty significant time period. It's meaningful all throughout scripture, and as the readers of scripture, we're invited to read a bit intertextually and to draw out some of those meanings. So if you look back in the Old Testament, we're talking thousands of years before where we are at now and where they were. We hear the story of the Israelites who were freed from slavery and led by Moses and wandered around the desert for 40 years before Moses and Joshua led them into the promised land. And then in the life of Jesus himself, he too was led into the wilderness for 40 days before he was able to begin his ministry. So the 40 gap is significant because it leads into something significant. The 40 gap signals that the disciples are being led by Jesus into a God-ordained season. So what is this season? Well, notice how in this passage in Acts, right at the beginning, it says that Luke describes his first book, the Gospel of Luke, as an account of all that Jesus began to do. So Acts is not a book about what the early church does. It's not a book about Paul. It's not a book about Peter or anyone else that is mentioned in it. It's a book about what Jesus continued to do in and through his people. So when we think, oh, gospel's about Jesus, acts about the church, no. Acts is what Jesus continued to do, but instead of Jesus being physically present, he sends his spirit instead. But why does he do this? Why does he do this? So in John 16, 7, we read Jesus telling his disciples, and now he's telling his disciples this in the week leading up to his arrest and his death. He says, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And by the advocate, he's talking about the spirit here. And I think it must have been hard for the disciples to get their head around that. Because I know for me personally, very selfishly, 
sometimes I just think, if I could see the literal, physical person of Jesus, that would sort out a lot of my questions. That would sort out a lot for me in my mind. But Jesus says, no, I actually have a better plan than that, a better plan than my physical self being here. Because one person has physical limitations. So Jesus sends his spirit to be poured out among all believers 10 days later on Pentecost, which we will be looking at and exploring in more detail in a couple of weeks. But so in these 10 days leading up to that, the disciples are told to wait. They're told to wait for Holy Spirit to come. And in this conversation, in this passage, they really don't get it, do they? It's a bit of a weird interaction because Jesus is talking about his spirit and then they ask question. Their question, um, they ask Jesus, their question and response is, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So their question is coming out of a limited understanding of some of the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures that talk about the kingdom. As the theologian Calvin, I think rather savagely said about this question, he said, there are as many errors in this question as words. Brutal. (laughs) I don't want him to write about the things I asked Jesus. Um, They asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And it reveals three things. Here are three of the things that he pulls out. So firstly, they you can see from this question that they've held on to this idea that the kingdom would be a geographical and political state. It was a literal thing that was going to be restored. Whereas what Jesus reveals is he's like, no, the kingdom is the spirit. The kingdom is spiritual. So that's the first mistake they make. The second one is that they think that Jesus has come just for Israel, whereas Jesus corrects them and he says, yes, go out, go out and tell your friends, tell your family, but I'm also sending you to Judea, I'm also sending you to Samaria, and I'm also sending you to the ends of the earth. This kingdom is international. It's for everyone. And the third mistake is that they think that the kingdom will be fully actualized at this time. They say, God, okay, the Spirit's coming now. Is, is the kingdom coming right now? Is it all going to be here? No. We know that. We see that. The kingdom gradually expands. That is what Jesus reveals. It's not for us to know the times and the dates, but the kingdom is expanding. But despite their misunderstandings, the conversation does reveal one really important thing for us. So this God-ordained season that began with Jesus' ascension and continues up until the present time that we too are a part of is about two things. And we've already begun to see what those two things are. It's about spirit and it's about kingdom. Because the disciples are told to wait for the spirit. And and I wonder if in that, like how do you think they felt in that 10-day limbo? Terrified? Nervous? Excited? Or a combination of all three? And I wonder if when they saw Jesus ascend up to heaven, they thought back to when some of them first met him and the Spirit descended down on him like a dove at his baptism. 
I wonder if they were drawing some of those parallels. I wonder if they were thinking even further back to the prophets, to the people they read in their scriptures that had been filled with the Spirit hundreds of years previously. And I wonder if that made them feel in awe of what was going to come. Either way, it was certainly an incredible thing that Jesus was saying that this is going to be a gift given to all. What I have received, what they received, is for all. But for the moment, they were told to wait. And when Jesus told them to wait for the Spirit, I don't think it was meant to be just a one-time command. I do think he was talking specifically about that 10-day period, but I think he was also talking beyond that as well because you can see it in the way the disciples continue to act. They knew their mission was to spread the gospel, to spread the good news, but throughout Acts, we see the apostles waiting at every turn for the Holy Spirit to lead them and guide them. And in Acts 16, we read that the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them, for example, to enter this place called Bithynia. And we don't know exactly what that looked like or what that means, but they felt in the Spirit they could not go to this one place. And so then they had a crazy dream and instead ended up going to Macedonia instead because they felt led by the Spirit to go there. That picture behind me is actually Macedonia, but it obviously didn't look like that then because that's a church. Um, But they were obedient to the Spirit in their own lives. So what does that look like for us? If God really does know what's better for us than we do, what does it look like for trust that his plans are also better than our plans? Because God's timing is not the same as our timing. And I don't know what kind of personality you fall into, but some of us would be the kind of people that would love to just rush on ahead. You get the idea and you go for it. You immediately dive into action. I fall into that camp for sure. And then you have other people that want to procrastinate forever. They like to think about it, they like to pray about it, and then it's 20 years later. Either way, either way, that is not what it looks like to live the life of waiting on the Spirit. Because abiding comes before activism. Waiting on the Spirit means keeping in step with God's timing. And this sense of waiting doesn't just revolve around the Spirit in this passage. It extends to the kingdom as well. The kingdom of God exists in any place, in any heart, where Jesus is king. So in that sense, we can experience the kingdom now. But at the same time, we read in this passage that Jesus shall return the way that he came. And this is pointing ahead to something that hasn't happened yet, where God's kingdom will be fully established, where there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and pain and crying and suffering will be no more. And we are definitely not there yet. So that tension is a tension that you'll probably have heard referred to before as the now and the not yet. And it's ultimately where so many of our big questions come from. If, you know, here's here's a question. If Jesus defeated the enemy, why is there still so much pain and suffering? Why does church disagree with herself so much? If God is real, where is he? Are Christians supposed to just wait in the meantime and let the world crash and burn? So many of these questions come back to the fact that we're existing in this tension of the now and the not yet. So there will be a time, Jesus says, where these questions will find their answer. But in the meantime, what do we do about it? Do we wait passively? 
Well, once when I was a teenager, um, my mum, oh, actually this, is story, this story is so embarrassing, but I am going to tell you it. So <laughs> when I was a teenager, my mum needed to pop out in the middle of cooking. So she told me to keep an eye on the soup keep an eye on the pot of soup that she was cooking. And can I just clarify, I was a younger teenager, and at that point in my life, I don't think I'd even turned on an oven before. So she just said, keep an eye on the soup. You know, she knew that I couldn't cook, but I was reasonably bright and reasonably responsible, and it seemed within my capability at the time. So I did, I kept an eye on the soup. I think I did a really good job. I kept an eye on that soup while it was happily bubbling away in its big pot, all the vegetables floating around as they should be. I kept an eye on that soup as the liquid started to kind of decrease in volume a little bit, and I thought, well, it's cooking, you know, it's condensing, all of that, I just kept an eye. Um, I kept an eye on it as sort of there was little to no liquid left in the pot of soup, but um, sort of a, just a clump of vegetable forming at the bottom. I kept an eye on that as it started to smell a bit burny, and I thought, well, I guess that's how you make soup. Um, and so you can imagine my surprise when my mum came back and was furious with me because I'd allowed the soup to completely evaporate. But I said, Mom, I did, I did exactly what you said. I kept an eye on it. I watched it all happen. And um, yeah, she wasn't happy with that. And uh, she has not let me forget it. So um, it, it, it did dawn on me later on that day that I think my mom was asking me to do something a little bit more than wait passively for her to come back. I think she wanted me to wait actively. And I think it's the same here. I think it's the same here. We are called to wait actively. Through the Spirit, we are given everything we need to bring about the kingdom from a place of abiding in God. And that will look different for everyone. So for you, it might look like fighting for justice in different spheres of society. You might be the kind of person who can do that from teaching and discipling and equipping the next generation. You might be someone who is called to exercise that with their money and support things that are godly and life-giving and bringing about the kingdom. It might be just that you're working on bringing that out in your own heart. It will look different for all of us, but for whatever it is, as we journey through the now and the not yet, we won't have all the answers, but that shouldn't paralyze us into passivity. We want to wait on the Spirit, but we should expect to be led from that place into the work that he has for us in his timing. And I love in the passage that the angel said to the disciples, why do you stand here looking into the sky after Jesus was ascending? And we can do that, right? We can do that. So let's not just stare at the sky or stick our head in the sand. When we know we have a call as followers of Jesus to bring about whatever love, whatever peace, whatever joy, whatever truth we can in our lives and in others. And we do this in the belief that right now, Right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And this is a remarkable thought because if we believe that Jesus 
died on a cross, that they pierced his hands and his feet and allowed him to die on a cross. And we believe also that he was resurrected and his body still showed the scars from what humanity did to him. And we believe that he ascended in his body and he is exalted by the Father and seated in the heavenly realms in the highest place. Then that means that he sat on the throne with those same scars and still he loves us and he wants to work for good in our lives. What a grace, what a goodness, what a God. Allow me to read to you the first few verses of 1 John 3. This comes a little bit later on in the Bible. It reads like this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. There is a great mystery in the not yet. What we will be has not yet been made known. Just as it says in the passage, it is not for us to know the times and the dates. But we do know that Jesus will come. And we also know that we will be like him. We will be made totally new totally pure, totally whole, wrapped up in his love, but still in some essential way ourselves. So if Jesus kept his scars, maybe we keep ours too. I don't know. But crucially, we will be made whole. And this is the message that I want to leave us with today. This is a word that as I was praying, I just felt like was important to share for us. We are invited into wholeness through the Spirit, in both the now and the not yet. Remember those things we talked about in the last few weeks, the grief, the doubt, the shame. Remember those questions that I threw out today and I'm sure the questions that are in your own head as well. But as we wait actively, the Spirit of God isn't only interested in using us to bring the good news to others, but also to minister to our own hearts as well as we abide in him. When Jesus is king of our hearts, a lifelong work of transformation takes place if we let it. So as we reflect on the ascension today, will you stare into the sky, stick your head in the sand, or will you invite the Spirit to come and begin to wait for him? So I'm going to pray and the band is going to come up and lead us in a time of response. Why don't we stand just now, if we're able, actually, as we respond to this. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come in this room, in this place. Thank you that that is the gift 
that you gave us, Jesus, when you ascended. Thank you that in your great love, in your grace, in your mercy and humility, you sit on that throne and pour out your love for us. Thank you that you were a God of mystery and yet you still want us to know you. Holy Spirit, come. And God, where there are things that are painful for us, where there are things that are not yet whole, would you just begin to minister into those places this morning?